Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a special guest, and we are going to be talking about some elder law issues with a real expert. I'll be speaking with attorney Harry Margolis of the Boston law firm Margolis & Bloom, LLP. Mr. Margolis has been practicing elder law since 1987. He has a special interest in helping consumers understand legal issues and is the founder of the website ElderLawAnswers.com, one of the Internet's leading sources of information for the public. His leadership in his field has been recognized by his peers in his selection as a fellow of both the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and the American College of Trusts and Estate Counsel. So I'm thrilled to have him here as a guest today to share some insights on some of the legal pitfalls that older adults and families often encounter and how you might be able to avoid them. Harry, welcome to the show. Hi, Leslie. Glad to be here. So I was hoping that in particular, we could talk about powers of attorney, durable general powers of attorney today. But before that, I wanted to just learn a little bit more about how you found yourself going into um elder law and how you became specialized in this. I mean, today we have a growing uh, older population, and I imagine it's becoming more and more common for attorneys to specialize in this. But when you first started working as an attorney in the 80s, the specialty was really just emerging. What led you to become interested in elder law? Well, back then, uh, as you say, there, elder law really didn't exist or it was, it was brand new. I got out of law school and did what was easy back then, which was I joined a large firm but didn't really feel that I fit into a large firm. But fortunately, my firm at the time staffed a position at Greater Boston Elderly Legal Services. And every four months, they sent another associate over to pick up the caseload and to learn, I guess, to practice on the legal services clients rather than, than their own uh, corporate clients. So I did that, found I liked working with real people better. Um, I was mostly do, actually doing landlord-tenant law at the time, but found out about this new field while I was there and ultimately never went back to the big firm. I left and hung up a, a, a shingle. It fit my, as I said, desire to, to work with regular people and also um, really working with a middle-class clientele that I hoped that um, I, I could help out. And I have an entrepreneurial bent, so s setting out on my own and starting my own my own firm, I guess, just fit me better than working for someone else. As I reflected talking to someone the other the other day, um, I actually haven't picked up a paycheck for over thirty years, and haven't <laughs> worked for anyone else for that much for that long. And so, was there something particularly about the problems of uh, older adults and families that appealed to you? I, to, to be honest, um, I I'd probably say no. <laughs> so it's really. Um, I think just it, it didn't necessarily have to be older adults, but I think it had to be kind of just regular people who are facing 
problems in this case dealing with uh, really a lack of a decent system in our country to pay for long-term care and having to meander through or find their way through um, to solutions. And uh, so it, it happened, I, I happened to have um, identified elder law as a new area that I could get into, but if it had been in a different time and a different opportunity, it might've been something else. Well, I was reading a little bit about elder law recently, and uh, the writer was saying that it's it's a discipline that sort of has to intersect with lots of other areas, both of the law and of uh, just other sectors of society, the long-term care payment system mm -hmm. and the medical system. And so it you know has a certain richness and diversity and also requires this big picture approach. And as I read that, I thought, oh, you know, that's... That's kind of what I liked about going to geriatrics, actually, yeah. as a physician, is that instead of becoming very narrowly focused on an organ or situation, you actually have to be able to see the, the fullness of people's lives and know a little bit about a lot of things. Right. I think that's true. And, uh, and certainly you need to know the law in our area and, and be a good advocate, but you're also often, even without, without the training, I think often working as a, a social worker and sometimes even as a therapist. Right. You have to do a little bit of a lot of things. Right. <laughs> okay. So speaking of doing a little bit of a lot of things, so for me as a physician, when it comes to legal and planning documents, health providers, um, we're usually fairly narrowly focused on what we might call medical planning documents. That was certainly what the emphasis in my own medical training was. And so things like advanced directives, living wills, medical powers of attorney, and documents that kind of help the medical system know how to take care of you if you become disabled. But the more I practiced geriatrics and worked with family caregivers, I found that people were often looking for help with problems that seemed more related to the general durable power of attorney. Mm -hmm. And I've, uh, over the past years, learned more about them. I certainly see them in my work. I certainly get asked sometimes to write letters saying so-and-so can't manage her affairs, and I've tried to write about them a bit on my own website. But I still have questions, and so I'd love to sort of bring some of these questions to you and, and discuss this a bit. Now, before I, I bring up some of the stuck points that I see happening to families all the time or where sometimes I get stuck, I was wondering, how do you explain to people what is a general durable power of attorney and why it's so important for older adults? Because um, I feel like often people have actually heard a little bit more about the living will than they have about a financial power of attorney or a general durable power of attorney. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, that gets into the news more, living wills and healthcare proxies and other kinds of medical directives. But a power of attorney is similar. It appoints an agent to step in for you to handle your finances or to um, sign legal documents if you're not able to do so yourself, whether you're um, usually mentally incapacitated, but uh, even if you're physically incapacitated or even if you're just not there at some particular time. So if you're out of the country, somebody can use the power of attorney to sign a document for you or to pay your bills or to move investments around um, if need be. And so then why, why are they so important, especially for, for older adults? Well, they're, they're, they're very important because um, you probably don't realize it, but every day you're, you are dealing with your finances and you're paying bills and you're you maybe moving an account around. And if you stop doing it, basically bad things can happen. Insurance premium may not be paid and something 
uh, may expire. You may be late in making payments on a mortgage, on your rent. These things just happen within days or within weeks or months. And if you become incapacitated, you need to have somebody who can, if possible, um, to step in and take this over for you. And so with the power of attorney, you, you get to choose who does that. Without a power of attorney, there's every state has a system called guardianship or, or conservatorship, depending on the state, where you can go to court and get a, and somebody can get appointed to step in for you. But that takes time. It costs money um, and it's burdensome because often uh, things that your, your agent under power of attorney can just go and do, a guardian or conservator has to go back to court to ask permission to do. Right. And uh, I find that people often actually think, I think they partly haven't really thought it through, but they assume that it's extremely unlikely that they would become incapacitated, that it's a little bit equivalent to how I could be in a terrible car accident or fall very sick as a, a younger person. And and in fact, right. um, it seems to me that as one gets older, one it's it's uh, you actually have to be uh, lucky to not go through some period of time right. when um, you're incapacitated either due to a, a, a serious illness, because when people are older, it's not just accidents, but potentially heart attacks or strokes or, or other serious health problems that can lead them to be hospitalized for for days or weeks. And um, and then there's also the possibility of slowly um, losing one's memory, which is right. a situation that comes up for me a lot. What do you tell people? Is there a likelihood of becoming incapacitated? Or is that something you discuss with them? Usually by the time people come in to see us, they understand the need for estate planning so that we do the power of attorney as part of a larger plan. It's not really just a standalone document. So we don't usually have to do too much to convince people to do this. It's probably the people who don't come in to see a lawyer who are avoiding estate planning who who more likely need to be convinced but I think you're right, you, and I think you, you would know better than I, that most people are going to have some period of incapacity during their life, whether it's a few days, a few weeks, a few months, or years, it can happen. And if you just kind of do a, almost a cost-benefit analysis, uh, a power of attorney is a several-page document that doesn't cost very much to get done, and you can even get a f- download forms for probably for free or low cost, either online or a stationary shop, purchase one. So the cost of setting it up is, is, is very low. And the benefit, if you do become incapacitated, is very great. So, um, so may as well do it. Mm-hmm. And I think you're bringing up another point, too, that I guess as, a, as an attorney, you see people who are coming in for the whole estate planning, but that as an individual, you don't have to necessarily have a large estate to manage, to, to do a general um, durable power of attorney. Um, you right. can, you can fact, have minimal it, assets. And so it's a good idea to set something up so that someone else can step in and, and help if you become unable to, to manage things at some point. In, in a lot of ways, it's more important if you have a smaller state. If you have a larger state and there's some cost to going to court to get a guardianship, it's not that big a burden in comparison to the size of your state. And you're more likely to have trust set up and things like that, that can also serve many of the same purposes as a power of attorney. But if you're a smaller state, you're not going to have, number one, the the cost is going to be a bigger burden of a guardianship and you're less likely to have a trust. So so the power of attorney becomes more important. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Well, great. Well, I was hoping that that we could talk a little bit about the sort of question of uh, people being uh, deemed incapacitated, or as they put it, sometimes incompetent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the situations that uh, especially come to my attention, just because of my, my specialty and the age range of the people who I tend to take care of. So, I mean, people often might think of a power of attorney as, you know, someone to pay my bills when I'm I'm not able to to do so. But it it also uh, the general durable power of attorney often the powers in it can be pretty broad and it can enable a family member or another person to assist in in all kinds of affairs. Um, so, one situation that I have seen come up a few times is that sometimes older adults lose their mental capacities but later recover them. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, delirium during a serious illness. And I think that sometimes, you know, I wonder if this isn't an impediment to people doing that durable power of attorney is that they're worried that people will take over inappropriately, you know, too soon or yeah. you know, that, that someone will be able to push them out of their homes and stick them in a nursing home or, you know, do things when it's when it's inappropriate. So could you speak about that a little bit like, yeah. in your own practice? You know, how do you uh, encourage people to define incapacity? And is it possible to write a power of attorney so that it can sort of account for the fact that somebody might be incapacitated for a time, but potentially recover? So there are a few few issues here. Um, So the first thing that that I would say is that all powers of attorney are revocable. So if if you've been hospitalized and during a period of a few weeks or months, you are incapacitated and someone steps in, and then later on, you're doing better, and you want to take back control, if they're resisting that, you can always revoke the power of attorney. Now, you may get into a fight about whether you have capacity to revoke the power of attorney, but the burden is then going to be on the on the agent under the power of attorney to prove that you did not have capacity. The assumption for all of us is that always that we do have capacity and, and to prove you don't, you have to go to court to, to prove that. So, um, so it can always be... Re- it can always be revoked. I'd also say, hopefully, you have someone you trust who's not going to do something too terrible during your period of incapacity. I mean, I guess the big risks are that, um, say, you, you're hospitalized, perhaps you move to a nursing home or assisted living, and then you do better and you want to move back to where you lived before, and it's an apartment and the person has given it up. Um, and that would be that would be unfortunate. It'd probably take them longer to sell sell a house or sell a condominium. The um, So there's, there's some risk. Is that something that one can kind of put into one's power of attorney or kind of associate documents that, you know, if I get very sick, don't sell my house until two doctors have said there's a, you know, that they're quite sure that I wouldn't, you know, definitely won't recover within six months and be able to move back. Right. You can do that, but we don't usually because you're balancing that against a practical issue. And the practical issue is some of these powers of attorney aren't accepted by banks and other institutions. And they, they've, they've, and we, we feel they violate the law and not honoring them, but they're uh, worried that they will do something um, and get challenged later on, say by, by the, the person who um, created the power of attorney or by someone else, a family member, if uh, the agent stole money. So they're, they're, they're not always so happy about accepting them. And the more you complicate them with, um, with conditions, the less likely they are to accept them. So the less useful they're going to be. Mm-hmm. 
so as a practical matter, we try we try to keep them as simple and as straightforward as as possible. So in addition to having a general durable power of attorney, we always advised contacting the bank or other financial institution where you have have accounts to see if they have their own form, because it's often useful to execute that form as well as the general durable power of attorney, because the institutions are more likely to accept those when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I noticed that on your website, you know, there's this sort of question uh, when one completes a power of attorney for general affairs. And in California, it's also an option on the healthcare power of attorney. But there's this option as to whether the agent has authority to act immediately or only once the principal, the principal being the person who is signing the power of attorney. Can the agent act immediately or only when the principal is incapacitated? Uh, And so those are sometimes called springing power of attorneys, I've heard, because they spring into action when the person is labeled incapacitated. And I saw that on your website, you discourage those because that creates an additional hurdle for the family members or the agent to have to clear is they might have to prove to somebody else that the older person is incapacitated and hence the agent can act. So in this case, if the power of attorney is not springing, do you, you find that there are often problems with the agent and principal disagreeing? We don't. So, so as you said, nine cases out of 10 in our practice, as soon as you sign the power of attorney, it's effective, um, though the real intent is not going to be used until it's needed when the principal becomes incapacitated. But you can create a power of attorney, which, as you said, is called springing power of attorney, where... It only takes effect when you've been determined to be incapacitated. And we we don't use those usually for two reasons. One is at the very time that's needed, the family's probably dealing with a lot of stuff. If you're hospitalized and trying to take care of you um, at home or take care of you in the hospital, but also take care of the home and make sure you're getting the proper care and then figuring out where you're going to go from the hospital that's a lot on their shoulders at the same time. They probably still have jobs and kids to take care of. So to add one more requirement that they prove that you become incapacitated just seems like um, an undue burden if you trust them in the first place. And the other question is, as we talked about before, the issue of being accepted by institutions. So if you say it's going to be effective upon my incapacity, then the question is, how do you prove incapacity at that stage to satisfy the bank that's going to be reviewing this power of attorney? Now, when we do do it, we say that a physician has to sign the actual document. So it becomes part of the document that that works. But as I said, nine cases out of 10, we, we don't do that because people trust the person they're going to appoint. And we haven't run into uh, very many problems during our practice, during my practice of, of three decades now. Mm-hmm. Well, let's consider a sort of a, a hypothetical. Let's say, mm-hmm. um, let's say an, an older woman is doing her advanced planning, and so she signs a power of attorney giving her her daughter the power to act as her agent, and it's not springing. Her daughter can act immediately, and then several years later, she she starts to spend money unwisely. She becomes paranoid that people are stealing from her. And she becomes reluctant to let her daughter review the checking account together. So basically, you know, in a way, showing signs of cognitive impairment, right. which could be early dementia. 
Or maybe she's sick with something. And if she were treated, you know, or it's partly a medication side effect that with the right treatment, she might recover and be, you know, and get better. So, so her daughter wants to protect her, her finances and sort of stop the, the spending. So she might go to the bank and somehow try to intervene and stop the spending. But then the, the mother goes and says, no, don't do it. Mm-hmm. What can the daughter do at that point? And how does the bank handle those kinds of situations? And can the mother then uh, say, I'm doing a new power of attorney right now? The mother can do that. And then, uh, as I said earlier, the mother can always revoke the power of attorney at any time. And then there's a question of whether the revocation is effective. So so right there, if the daughter wants to contest the revocation, mm-hmm. uh, because she's done her research and finds that there is, you know, fair reason to believe that her mother's judgment might be impaired to the point that she's... Uh, she's lost that capacity. What can the daughter do? Who does she appeal to? So the problem, the problem is then you're probably in the position where you would be without a power of attorney and you'd, the solution is really to go to court and get appointed conservator and, uh, and go, go through that process, which as I discussed earlier is time consuming and, uh, can be expensive as well and can also create a, um, problems in the in the mother daughter relationship because now you've got the daughter going to court fighting the mother so that becomes um difficult so sometimes people take uh, other measures and um so you may find a way to shelter some of the money um it's really often through subterfuge so if she has the power of attorney rather than confronting her mother and saying you can't spend money she limits the spending by moving if if letting the mother manage her checking account but segregating her all of her savings and investing from the from the checking account and that may be a little dishonest in a way but it works better Mm -hmm. right so avoiding a sort of direct confrontation and right once she's gone through the ethical process of deciding that it's she's justified in overriding her mother because her mother seems to have lost enough insight and judgment then she could use the power she does have to, to try to, to protect her mother's finances. Yes. Since we know that that's generally the goal of the older person and that's what the proxies are supposed to be doing is trying to help them reach their goals. Right. I think you end up with a, a lot of these, these problems, especially when someone's partially has some capacity, um, but doesn't, uh, has, has lost some ability. And as you know, there are, more and more sort of predators out there trying to scam the elderly um, because some of them have have lost the abilities they used to have. So the question is, how do you protect someone without uh, taking away their dignity and independence? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and sometimes you you may have to do it in a way that's not totally straightforward. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for 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 talking about that. That's that's very helpful. I now wanted to ask questions about another topic that I see come up quite a lot, which is the issue of family conflicts related to mm-hmm. the agent's actions. So often one person has been appointed agent, often one of the adult children, although sometimes it's a friend or another mm-hmm. relative. And then often other family members have concerns about what the agent is doing. And um, sometimes it's along the lines of, I don't think you should be selling her house to put her in assisted living. I think you should mm-hmm. you know, be making different choices. And then in other cases, it's sort of 
more substantial in that there are concerns that the the agent is potentially committing fraud or you know unduly abusing the position to for financial gain yeah and uh and then i've also seen a lot of situations where it's the older person who's complaining about the agent to other people yeah and uh you know and if the agent is acting overriding the older person that's usually because that older person has lost some capacity and so yeah. there's this uncertainty about you know are they making these accusations because of paranoia and cognitive impairments or are they actually legitimate so so I see families asking all the time what can be done about this. And I was wondering what your suggestions are, either what family members can do at that time, or maybe afterwards we can talk about, is there a way to sort of set things up earlier to avoid these kinds of, of uh, conflicts? Yeah. So we see these, these as well. And, and often, there, as you said, there are disagreements. Um, and often there's uh, one child who's on the scene and and feeling burdened, another child who, who's uh, often in Massachusetts, we say is 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 from California, um, and swoops in and uh, and has uh, an un- unrealistic view of how things are, or how they should be. Um, so we see that. We also see that the the person who's providing care on the scene at some point uh, feels well, they ought to be compensated for that, and that's when they may take some money or the parent may give them some money and that may be someone who's not there may look askance at that. Mm-hmm. So our, our, our biggest advice is really just transparency and, and discussion. Because a lot of, I mean, the other thing that happens is that the person who's taking care doesn't do anything at all dishonest, but people still look at them, um, are still suspicious, and they may be suspicious because there's a lack of communication. So if there's openness, transparency, communication, then there's less likely to be suspicions and more likely that, that people can work, work together. So, that, so that's number one. So transparency is number one. The other part is communication. And the more family members talk about what's needed, uh, what, what the parent's condition is, talk with the parent about what they want, um, with everybody included in the conversation rather than a series of conversations between the parent and one child or another child, then the more you can come to some understanding. Because it may be that it does make sense to pay to compensate the person who's providing care. And if you do that up front with everybody knowing about it and agreeing on it, then you may avoid a lot of misunderstandings down the road or suspicions or resentments. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not always going to work. There are, as you said, situations where there's just total disagreement about what what's appropriate to do. Um, but it's more likely to work if if everyone's talking. The other thing we recommend is if you can come into agreement about, um, especially if there's going to be some compensation to the care provider, is re- you write it down. Mm. There needs to be a family agreement. Um, and, and I think it's best to use a, a lawyer, a third party to do it, just to make sure it's uh, done well and that person's going to have a lot of more experience in terms of what questions to ask. But even if you don't do that, we always recommend writing it down for two reasons. One, when you start writing it down, you realize where the disagreements or the the, uh, misconceptions may be, where one, one person's assuming one thing and somebody else is assuming something else. If you don't write it down, you won't know that there's different assumptions. And number two, memories differ. So 
if you write down today and then you look back at it in three years, if you hadn't written down, you may remember differently what you had agreed to three years earlier. Now, uh, when you were saying to sort of write it down and make an agreement, were you referring to a sort of agreement to maintain transparency, you know, during the process of somebody being the agent for the parents or more an agreement in terms of the the compensation for the person who's bearing the heaviest load of, of helping? I was thinking more, in, more in terms of, of the of the compensation, but also issues. I mean, often either the parent moves in with the kids or the kids move in with the parent if they're providing care. Right. And the power of attorney may go along with that, but there, there are issues about who's paying rent, who's paying for food. Um, there's uh, um, what's going to happen when, when you do need to start hiring help in addition to what the, the child is providing. Um, how's that going to be paid for? If you can, put, again, put this on paper, that's going to help a lot. The other thing people always need to realize in these situations, and we're, we're getting kind of far from the power of attorney now, well, is but that I, I think it's 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 somewhat related. You know, it's about yeah. the the tensions that arise when a family is collectively concerned about an older person. Right. I think, as you said, the sort of need for uh, transparency and communication often untangles a lot of things. Yeah, and I think another there's got there has to be realization that this is a changing situation. So unfortunately, the parent is likely to decline, whether physically or mentally. So the care and the living arrangement that makes sense today may not make sense three months from now or three years from now. So it has to be a continuing conversation and there have to be, and all the parties have to be willing to recognize the changes that occurs and, that, and recognize that they're going to have to talk about how to deal with the needs as they arise. Right. So transparency and communication help a lot. But coming back to the situation that I described earlier, where there's a family member who's concerned about what the power of attorney is doing, let's say they ask the the agent for some more communication and transparency, and they feel that the agent is not really forthcoming, or mm-hmm. is kind of blocking them out. What recourse do they have at that point if they really are concerned that the older person is, is uh, I guess there are two situations. You know, one, what recourse do they have if they're concerned about actual fraud yeah. or abuse? And then the other is if they're just concerned that the older person's wishes are not being respected. So it gets very difficult um, if, if the agent is not being transparent, is unwilling to be transparent. So in terms of actual fraud, somewhat easier because you're more likely to be willing to um, have a rupture in the relationship, I guess. So there are two options. One is to see if there's a, an adult protective services agency in the community. And you can often report to them anonymously, and they have a duty to investigate. Now, the kind of competency of the agency or the person who's, um, who's doing the investigation can vary, and you don't have control. So um, sometimes they're less aggressive than you might want. Sometimes they're more aggressive than you might want. Um, right. And uh, but at least, but there's no cost to it, and and they'll investigate. And the fact that they're there hopefully will act as a deterrent to, to any fraud. The other choice is to go to court and seek to be appointed guardian or conservator, and basically take the power away from the. You, if you're appointed guardian or conservator, 
then that basically uh, removes the power of attorney and the attorney in fact. Right. And then uh, I guess a sort of somewhat advantage of guardianship or conservatorship is that then the the actions of the guardian can continue to be reviewed by the court periodically. Right. Isn't that true in most states? Yeah. So so there's a letter of the law and then what actually happens is, is, is the problem. So um, and there's there's variation among states. But in every state, the conservator or guardian has to file an, file an account um, or supposed to, at least supposed to file an account stating how they're spending the money. And then that account can be reviewed and can be challenged. Some states are more um, active in getting the person appointed to actually do that than other states. Right. So... So when an older person, you know, if an older person wanted to try to anticipate and avoid these problems, when they set up their power of attorney, is it possible to specify that that you want your agent to kind of sort of submit what they've been doing or communicate what they've been doing to the rest of the family members? Yes. Um, I think, I think again, you run into some, a couple practical issues. One is if you put too many re- requirements or conditions on it, then you might make the financial institutions nervous and they may not honor it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's number one. And then number two, to some extent, it's only as good as the paper it's written on. So you require this kind of transparency and reporting, and then they don't do it, then what? What's the? what are the other family members going to do about that? Well, you know, we sort of have that issue, though, in, in healthcare. Because uh, it sort of struck me that, you know, in healthcare, there's often, there's the proxy, the, mm-hmm. you know, the durable power of attorney for healthcare. And then separately, there's the advanced directive and living will where people provide a, it kind of varies the spectrum of how much information they put in about their wishes. Yeah. And similarly, there's, you know, a little bit of an issue of, of how often is that honored? Mm-hmm. But many people feel that it helps for them to at least spell something out, whether or not it, how legally yeah. enforceable that will be later or practically you know, enforcement yeah. from a practical perspective is is debatable, but that if people at least went through the exercise of specifying some things that can help potentially later on in uh, avoiding or resolving disagreements. Yeah. No, I, no, I guess, I mean, to some extent, taking back what I was just saying, I think that's true because if you um, do require that there be certain accounting to other family members, it may not be that enforceable, but the fact that it's there has um, a lot of moral force and, and it gives the other family members some grounds for saying, hey, tell us what's going on. Well, mostly I was you know, sort of wondering, is there a legal equivalent to the, to the living will, you know, which separate from the assigning the power to somebody, you know, where you kind of clarify what you would want your priorities to be and what, your, what should guide your agent? You, you can certainly do that. We, we find that more in trusts. And um, so people often create living trust, revocable or living trust, which are the same thing, also to manage assets and uh, also to avoid probate. And we find that in some ways they can work better than a power of attorney because banks and financial institutions accept them more, but they're also often just longer documents, which allow for putting more specificity in them. Mm-hmm. So. And and uh, and they and they usually do have terms in them about providing accounts to various beneficiaries, and uh, who has oversight and who can change the trustee even without going to court. 
So you can put a lot of things in a trust, which you normally wouldn't put in a power of attorney. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like a lot of that information can be potentially, you know, useful. Yeah. In uh, avoiding or resolving some of these family conflicts that come up. Now, I also saw on your website and one of your articles about durable powers of attorney that that sometimes people appoint two agents to serve Mm -hmm. um, concurrently at the same time. I hadn't really heard of that. I was familiar with, you know, people having an alternate. Yeah. You can step in if the first one is is not available or resigns or, or can't serve. Could you talk a little bit about that approach, the idea of having two people who can who can serve at the same time? What are the pros and cons of that approach? So it's mostly pros, I think, because um, then they both have a right to see everything. And so that it creates transparency. Um, but the way we write them, either can act so they don't both have to sign every check or, or uh, sign any contract or anything else that happens. Um, but it gives them the, it requires them to work together, which I think is a good thing, gives them both access to information and allows them to share duties so that uh, it doesn't become overburdensome on one or the other. The problem with it is if they disagree. So if they, if they disagree, then they kind of come to a standstill and uh, nothing happens. And, uh, and that can be, a, that, that, that's a potential problem. But hopefully, if you um, have two people you trust, that uh, uh, you, can, you can appoint them both and this will work. I mean, the other issue with, with families is if, if you have uh, two kids, it's easy to name both, but we do shy away from having more than two people just because it, then it, including everybody in the loop, becomes more burdensome. Mm-hmm. So if you have three kids, do you name two and leave one out? That gets to be a little, that might not uh, work so well with the family dynamic. But one or two is, uh, we, we often do one or two on powers of attorney. Okay. Well, I'm glad to know about that because uh, I hadn't heard of it, but it did seem like it could certainly help from the, the transparency and communication perspective. Let me bring up another complaint that I hear from families. Um, and get your take on it. So another complaint that I hear sometimes is that the the power of attorney, the agent, won't let other family members visit the older mm-hmm. person. So this, again, is far more likely to happen for an older person who has developed dementia or otherwise become pretty incapacitated. And that person might be at home or might be in a facility. And I see and sometimes hear from families complaints about this, that they're not allowed to visit. Does an agent actually have the right to prevent other family members from visiting? And what recourse do people have? So that's a real gray area. So um, there are a couple of questions here. I mean, is it is it the person on the power of attorney who has that power? Is it a person on a healthcare proxy um, who has the, the power? Or do neither of them have the right to deny access. And the law may be different in state to state, and it may depend on the facility because it may have to do with the contract you sign when you enter the facility about who has that right and it becomes a contractual right. The issue is the person who's, who's in the facility, whether it's assisted living or hospital or nursing home, they have the right to see whoever they want. And, um, and no one should be denying access unless that right's been taken away for some reason or they don't have the capacity to, to express 
who they want to see. Well, I, I think the agent's reasoning is often that that when certain families uh, members visit, it is too distressing or disruptive mm-hmm. yeah. for the person. That it's either emotionally distressing, or that it is uh, financially risky because it's a family member who's going to ask the older person for money or for other things that they might still have the capacity to give. Yeah. So that that I think is you know the reasoning that sometimes is brought up by uh, by agents. And it's true. I have seen some situations where the visits from certain individuals do actually seem overall quite distressing to the person. Yeah. And one might could make an argument that it creates more harm and burden than or it creates enough harm and burden that it might be justifiable to mm-hmm. to prevent those visits. Yeah. And every, so every case is um, is different. Every perspective is different. <laughs> um, That's so true. Okay, so, yeah, so it gets it gets difficult. I, I guess I'm more concerned often about somebody who's rather than being an institution is at home and the caregiver is denying access to other people because that can be much more problematic because they are they are almost by definition much more isolated, right? And then much more subject to um, potentially subject to abuse or being taken advantage of. So in those in those cases, if there's denial of access, I'd be much more likely to recommend that people contact protective services or go to court um, for guardianship or conservatorship, so they gain access. Someone who's an institution, it's more complicated, I think, because um, as you said, there may be really good reasons to be denying access, and the institution has a role in this. So I think you almost have to kind of look at it case by case to figure out how to how to respond. Right. Well, it sounds like uh, these are complicated situations and to the extent to which people uh, want it, sounds like it's still, you're still better off having either a durable general power of attorney or a trust. Yep. And it's always better to, to talk with your family early about what you would want and to write things down. And uh, today it's also actually quite, you know, it's becoming easier and easier for families to record their conversations. I don't know how many of them are taking advantage of that. But, you know, since since data is often cheap and the technology is easy, a lot of these family conversations could be recorded and filed away. And if there are disagreements later, you know, one could listen and transcribe them and see what people said. Do you have any last tips or suggestions for the audience on how they should address there are durable general powers of attorneys and where they can find, you know, resources to help them do this or revise this. So I think um, everybody should have an estate plan and do the power of attorney as part of that, whether you do it online yourself or with an attorney. I uh, strongly recommend it. And I, as, and I think for a lot of reasons, the power of attorney is often more important than a lot of other estate planning documents. So I would go ahead and, and, uh, and execute one. But all this is assuming you have someone who you would If you don't, it gets, pretty, it gets much more difficult and um, it may make more sense to use a trust, especially if you have enough money so that you can work with a financial institution. But uh, look into it and uh, execute one if, um, if you can. Yeah, there are professional fiduciaries too, at least in California. I think more in California than other places. But, um, but that's one option for people who don't want to rely on a family member or don't have a family member. 
or other trusted person to, to take this on. Well, Harry, this has been really helpful. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Leslie. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in the episode, you can post it on the show notes page for this episode. I'll also be posting some of the links to some of the resources that we mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.